Section 10 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns. The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns. The New Witness, 1922. By G.K. Chesterton. Section 10. At the Sign of the World's End. The Shield of Private Property. By G.K. Chesterton. The socialist critic commonly proceeds directly to denounce capitalism without defining property. This is very much as if a man set out to denounce Mormonism without having heard of marriage. For that matter, there seems to be a good deal printed in the papers about Mormonism just now. Why only just now, I do not profess to know. I should have thought that the appropriate time for discussing Mormonism would have been when we were discussing undenominational religion and how it would be possible to teach an essential Christianity which would reconcile all sects of Christians. It was then ingeniously argued that if the Bible were only read without comment, it would naturally be open to exhaustive criticism. And if any Christian can listen to the Bible and draw his own moral, there seems no reason why he should not listen to the Old Testament and draw the Mormon moral. I hope I need not remark that I have no sympathy with the sulky barbarism of this sect, whether it practices polygamy or not. To think of one woman being married to a Mormon is a quite sufficient tragedy. But I think that those who are making a scare about the matter have fallen very much into the fallacy already mentioned. They are really, in a sense, denouncing Mormonism without recognizing marriage. They do not seem to see that polygamy is only wrong because monogamy is right. And judging by the delight with which they throw themselves into the most polygamous extravagances of divorce, I am by no means certain that they really think monogamy is right. A Muslim may be a good man in every sense except being a monogamist. He may have four wives and work for them and keep them and be kind to them. He is relatively a very respectable person. On the other hand, a man calling himself a gentleman will seduce his friend's wife in his friend's house while he is enjoying his friend's hospitality, and will only figure in a fashionable divorce case and then continue in the present social chaos to adorn fashionable society. He seems to me far more disreputable than a Muslim or even a Mormon, but he has not made an object of attack, or indeed an object of anything but advertisement by people who are horrified at a Muslim or a Mormon. But I only mention such things here as part of a particular parallel in the case of property. Just as these people denounce polygamy without really considering whether monogamy is right and rational, so the collectivists denounce capitalism without considering whether property is right and rational. For there is obviously some connection between the two ideas, whether or not it be the connection we allege of abuse and antagonism. Even if they do not admit that capitalism is wrong because property is right, they will at least agree that capitalism exists because property exists. Socialists generally assert that all property must inevitably end in capitalism. This is a somewhat sweeping assertion, and rather similar to saying that when a man begins to get married, he cannot leave off. Moreover, it is manifestly inconsistent with all the realities of the world as we know it. Capitalism, in the sense of the concentration of capital, covers a considerable part of the modern world, but it does not cover anything like the whole, even of the modern world, any more than polygamy does. Industrialism is hardly larger than Islam, and it might well be maintained that industrialism is a sort of fad or provincial fashion on the northwest fringe of Europe, as is Islam on the southeast fringe of Europe, and that the European center remains unchanged, and its pivot is the peasant. Industrialism has been a marvelous manifestation of the genius and energy of man, but so was Islam. Industrialism appeared to be more progressive and enlightened than its rural rivals, but so did Muslim monotheism seem for a time more rational and human than the creed of Christendom. Industrialism is still a very fixed and formidable thing, and so is Islam, as our fools of politicians will soon discover. But because the habit of having four wives is permitted over the whole field of Islam, 
it does not follow that it is the central field of the world, or that it is still largely occupied by private property that has not evolved into capitalism, just as it is occupied by a household that has not evolved into a harem. But even those who differ from us about where property ends might take an intelligent interest in where capitalism begins, and if they are really dealing with where it begins, they might reasonably begin at the beginning. But the socialists seldom tell us anything about private property, even as a thing that is ultimately abused, or is bound to be ultimately abused. They leave out the whole notion of property, not merely as a truth, but even as a temptation. They choose to assume that private property was never anything but a sort of crude capitalistic luxury. And they are very much startled when they collide with the peasant, as in Russia, and find that the strongest sense of property is not found in the world of luxury, but in the world of poverty. The result was that the Bolshevists had to surrender to the peasants all along the line. Because, although they hated the peasants and their principle, they also despised the peasants and did not try to understand their principle. Yet the principle is very simple. It is that private property is not one of our luxuries, but one of our liberties. Property has two primary social functions. It is protective and it is creative. When an earlier and more spirited generation of Zionists were engaged in rebuilding Zion after the Babylonian captivity, the vivid narrative notes that they had to work with the trowel in one hand and the sword in the other. Property is to the citizen what those implements were to the city. Property is both the sword and the trowel. It enables the citizen to do something, and it defends him while he is doing it. The idea of property as protection is partially guessed at in our groping sociology. It is stated as one of those half-truths that make one feel as if the world were half-witted. It is generally stated just now under the title of security. Now there is a sense in which we might be very well content with the ideal of giving a man security. But security of what? It is typical of such short-winded speculations that scarcely anybody goes on to ask what a man should be secure of having any more than what he should be efficient in doing or what he should be organized to do. If it merely means that his life shall be secure, it is probably that the place where his life would be most strictly and solidly secure would be in Dartmoor Prison. A man condemned to live in a bare cell for ten years cannot be run over by a cab or drowned in a river. He cannot die in battle or drink himself to death. Unless he is condemned to be hanged in prison, he is quite unlikely to perish prematurely while he is there. This quite simple fact disposes of the whole of the old argument, used by Macaulay in the Manchester School, of the proof of prosperity from longevity. But it would be even stronger against the socialist than against the individualist. But suppose we do not merely mean security of life, but also security of liberty, or, in other words, security of life worth living. We shall then find that to leave to the citizen some private powers is the only possible way of protecting him against abuse of public powers. Anything is something of the nature of property, if it renders secure not only his own life, but his own mode of life. Of the creative function of property, I hope to offer some final summary in an article next week. Here I will conclude on the political point of property as the sword of the citizen. It is his private defense against the possible tyranny of the city or of the rulers of the city. He will not give it up except to a perfect prince. A logical socialist government cannot allow of an opposition. It may have an official opposition, a thing like His Majesty's opposition, a team of tame critics pledged not to criticize too much. But that is only to say that socialism will be as hypocritical as capitalism. Real criticism could not be permitted for a reason that is not only in the nature of socialism, but is part of the case for socialism. The case for socialism is a very strong and sincere case so far as it goes, and those who pretend that it is merely lawless and sentimental deserve to suffer from its triumph. A socialist state cannot allow opposition, because a socialist state cannot allow anything. It is the whole point of it that it produces everything, possesses everything, and is directly responsible for everything.
it is its whole claim that nothing is merely tolerated as the abuses of property are tolerated. It has all the means of production, distribution, and exchange. And if there is any shooting, material or moral, it produces the shots, and distributes the shots, and arranges for the exchange of shots. We cannot imagine people going to a king in the old days and saying, please, will you give us a thousand bows and two thousand lances, because we want to raise a rebellion against you. Rebellions were made by people who possessed weapons as private property. Neither can we imagine people going to a government that owned all the paper and printing presses and saying, do lend us your machinery, and we will print the clearest possible proofs of your corruption and criminality. We could not go to a politician and borrow a platform from which to convict him of taking bribes. We could not ask him to pay for the circulation of a pamphlet exposing him as an obvious traitor. And we may be certain that if there is no private property, many other things will remain only too private. End of section 10.